Bow with me one more time as we ask God's blessing on this preached word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are ignorant of all things pertaining to you and to your glory, to your gospel, to your grace, to your judgment. In ourselves, in our natural man, we have suppressed your truth and unrighteousness just like everyone else. And yet you have, by your grace, given us a new mind and a new heart to receive your word as Christians, and so we pray. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your word. Arrest our attention, arrest our hearts with your great mission to the world to save sinners for yourself, to gather worshipers for your name. May we join you in this work and give us success, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Jesus said to Zacchaeus in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came from heaven to earth on a mission. He did that because God is a God of mission. God is seeking worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is God's mission. He is worthy of all worship and praise, loyalty and reliance. And therefore, the church does not exist for itself. Yes, the church exists for our edification, our building up, our learning, our growth. But the church builds up believers so that they will be sent out on, literally, a mission from God. The church exists by God and for God as an agent of God, the body of Christ, filled with His Spirit to seek and save the lost by His grace, to gather worshipers for the Lord who will worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. What happens in the biblical book of Acts, then, is not simply a bunch of separate miracles of the apostles for us to marvel at. Nor is it even a bunch of loosely related conversion stories about how some unbelievers came to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nor is it even uh, merely the story of how a few local churches were planted in Asia Minor and Greece. It is a story of how the risen Christ, continuing His mission on earth, To seek and save the lost is still active here, even now. And he's training us and building us up to join him on that mission. If you'll turn with me to Acts 13, we'll see five fundamentals of mission in the conversion of a regional Roman politico. Five fundamentals of mission. Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read out loud for us Acts 13, 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, 
they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The five fundamentals of mission, Christian mission. First, Missions incubates in the local church. Missions incubates in the local church in verses 1 to 3. Antioch was a city on the northeast coast of the Mediterranean Sea near modern-day Syria. These men in verse 1 are identified as prophets and teachers. They're not first and foremost managers or miracle workers. They're not therapists or CEOs or retail service providers. They are prophets and teachers who listen to God and who speak for God. They teach and train God's people. They pray for God's people and with God's people. Prophets and teachers. What unites them is not how they look or where they're from. This is not a white church or a black church or a Hispanic church or an Asian church. Barnabas, will remember, was a Jew from the island of Cyprus, which is off the Mediterranean Sea, about in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, about 75 miles long, and about 75 miles from the city of Antioch on the eastern coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. Simeon had a nickname that meant black, so he's probably from somewhere in northern Africa. Lucius is from the city of Cyrene, which was also in northern Africa and modern-day Libya. Menaean was brought up as a child in the home of the man who would become Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, from the days of Jesus' infancy. And then there was Saul, the Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia in far eastern Turkey. What unites their diversity is faith in Jesus, love for Christ, submission to the ways of God and the gospel of Christ crucified. They believed God is our holy creator and our righteous judge who created us to know and love, serve and worship him forever. They believed that mankind found its greatest solidarity in being created by this God and found their greatest 
problem in their shared and universal sinfulness. Rebellion against God as our common creator and judge, no matter what our color or culture. They believe God could and should send people to hell for eternal conscious torment because of our sin against an eternally good, righteous God. Yet they were grateful to discover that God had sent His eternal and only begotten Son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live the sinless life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die for our sins in our place as our substitute penalty under God's wrath. And that this Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended to God's right hand to rule His kingdom. And He will come back to judge the living and the dead. And if we turn from our sins and trust in this Christ, we can be reconciled to the Creator God that we rebelled against and whose love and law we spurned. They believed all that, whether black, brown, or white. That's the message that united the church in Antioch, even when its leaders were from different cultures and of different colors. They led by teaching that message from all the Scriptures. In verse 2, they led in worship. They were worshiping the Lord, concentrating their minds. They were fasting in order to concentrate their minds. They're abstaining from food for some unstated period of time. And in the middle of their worship, whether they're singing, praying, reading, or preaching God's Word, I don't know, but in the middle of it, the Spirit of God said something. The Spirit spoke and moved in the context of the church simply being the church. Pursuing the ordinary means of grace, worshiping the Lord together by preaching, praying, singing, reading Scripture together. As the leaders and the church were focused upward, the Spirit impelled them outward. Worship thrust them out into mission. And the same should be true of us. As we marvel at what God has done in Christ, at what God is, at who He is, at who Christ is, about the redemption that He has worked for us in Jesus, we should move out to the nations with that message. Antioch is a church with prophets and teachers, ministers of God's Word. God's Spirit always works in connection with God's Word. There's a reason the Spirit spoke to this church in particular. There were prophets and teachers there. The Word is breathed out by the Spirit, and the Spirit works in and through the Word. And here, as missions incubates in the church, the Spirit initiates mission as an outward movement of particular leaders from a particular church into other parts of the world. Now, I don't know how the Spirit of God talked to them. I don't know how He said what He said. Seems like an audible voice here. But remember, there are prophets among them, full-on New Testament prophets, men who received new revelation from God as the Scriptures were being sewn together as a perfect revelation. But remember, 
in order to push forward the new spread of the gospel, they needed this new information. So maybe it was a prophetic vision, but it seems more definite than that. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Spirit speaking in the first person, me, I, seems like audible speech. They fast again, they pray for Barnabas and Saul, they lay hands on them, and then they send them away. So notice here, fasting and laying on of hands are physical accompaniments to the central spiritual act of prayer. Prayer is the central thing. And even then, they're praying over missionaries that they're getting ready to send out. Prayer is primary. Fasting and laying on of hands are supplementary. So if we are not praying, and yet we are fasting in a religious way, our fasting is useless. It's not New Testament fasting. Fasting is always accompanied by prayer. Fasting always accompanies prayer, prayer being the main thing. What we see here is that local churches recognize, affirm, and send missionaries. That's what local churches do. Missions incubates in gospel-centered, God-worshiping, Christ-preaching, Bible-reading, Bible-singing, Spirit-empowered churches. Missionaries come out of local churches. Worship produces missions. Missions, in turn, produces more worshipers. Now think about this. Pastors and missionaries do not simply come out of seminaries. You don't build seminaries and then all of a sudden people come to them, just kind of sprout up from nowhere. And they're like, oh, hey, yeah, I want to study there. I want to go into the ministry. I want to learn more. I want to study. I want to learn the languages of biblical Hebrew and Greek. I want to learn systematic theology. I want to be educated better so I can teach better. Where do those students come from? Seminary students come from local churches because pastors and missionaries come from local churches. If seminary students are coming from somewhere other than local churches, then we don't want them here in, <laughs> from the seminaries. And we shouldn't want to send them. From the church's perspective, this is one of our great responsibilities. Churches, it's our job, led by the elders, to recognize, affirm, and send missionaries, pastors, and church planters as the Spirit of God raises them up among us or brings them to us from the outside. It's our job. It's our privilege. Where are missionaries going to come from? Where will pastors be raised up and nurtured and taught and incubated, tested, trained, affirmed, if not in the local churches? This is where it starts. This is where world mission starts, right here. 
among you. This is where church planting starts. This is where pastors are raised up and trained. This is the group from which pastors, church leaders, church planters, missionaries, evangelists will be sent out. The church is God's missions program. The church is God's pastoral training program. This is it. This is the institution. Conversely, it is the prospective missionary's responsibility to submit themselves to the recognition, affirmation, training, and sending of some real, visible, local congregation and its leaders. This is a necessary mark of humility and submission as a prospective, aspiring pastor or missionary. Even Barnabas and Paul, gifted as they were, Paul was an apostle. They submitted themselves to the recognition, affirmation, and sending of their local church and their fellow elders. And isn't it wonderfully appropriate that Barnabas and Saul begin their ministry? They cut their teeth as elders in a local church alongside other elders with a different skin tone from their own. And they submitted to the authority and affirmation of other elders whose names we would never have known unless it were for the success of the ministry of people like Barnabas and Saul. We'll see throughout Acts that Paul will return to Antioch to report back on his progress, to rest, to fellowship, and to renew his resources with this local church that sent him. He is responsible to them, and they, in turn, take responsibility for him. He reports to them, they provide for him. So missions incubates in the local church. We want to be this kind of church. We want to be this kind of church. With multiple teachers, multiple elders, multiple qualified leaders. We want to be a local church where young men aspiring to pastoral ministry can come and be trained in how to think rightly about the gospel, the church, pastoral ministry, where they can grow in their conviction, their character, their conduct. We want to be a church that serves as an, an incubator environment for new elders, new missionaries, new pastors, new church planters, and new pastors who want to go into dying churches with the intent of revitalizing those churches with the gospel. We want to be a church that sends some of its best and surplus leaders out to plant other churches elsewhere. This is exactly what's happening in the church at Antioch. You recognize this? They've got five prophets and teachers. And look who they send. Look who they share. Look who they give up. Saul and Barnabas. Now that's a sacrifice. They sent two of their best. We incubate elders, we develop them, we strengthen them, and then with some of them, not all of them, we can't send all of them, but with some of them, some of them of whom it hurts us when we give them up, 
Some of them we share, we export as elders to other congregations. That's what we kind of did with Tim Goldstein when he moved to Nashville, right? Now he moved to Nashville for lots of different reasons. But he's now serving as an elder at Westwood Baptist Church where my friend Nick Lingle is the pastor. That's wonderful. He is one of the first non-staff elders in that church and he's being a huge encouragement to that young pastor. So we want to become a net exporter of elders to other congregations all over the country, all over the world. That is a great commission mindset. We don't hoard elders all to ourselves. Yes, we want to raise up more and more. I don't think a church can have too many biblically qualified elders. But we share them. We send them out. We incubate them. We recognize them. We affirm them. We give them experience. And then, with some of them, we give them away. We send them out. We encourage them to go and be a blessing to other churches by serving those churches as qualified elders. Second, missions interests the intelligent. It interests the intelligent, verses 4 through 7. Now, it's initially a little mundane. Notice here in verse 4 that the men sent by the church leaders are here said to be sent out by the Holy Spirit. But then, who really sent them? The church leaders or the Spirit? And the answer is, yes. The Spirit uses churches and their leaders, mundane as they are, to send out missionaries. So we're instruments, agents in the Spirit's hands. The Spirit works using churches, humdrum as they are, and their leaders, humdrum as they are, as His chosen means and agents to accomplish His chosen ends. People you have never heard of were used by the Spirit to send out Paul and Barnabas from a local church that was made up of people that you will never know their names. And again, here at the outset of the ministry itself, looks pretty humdrum. First they have to go down to Seleucia, a port city 15 miles or so south of Antioch on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Then they sail to Cyprus, the island about 75 miles off the coast of Israel. And you think, well, why Cyprus? Now, to us, Cyprus seems really exotic, right? Cyprus. But Acts 4.36 says Barnabas was a Cyprian. Barnabas is not going somewhere exotic, not to him. Barnabas is going home. This is where he's from. At least initially, that's where he's going. They get to Salamis, a port city on the eastern end of the island, they proclaim the Word of God there, and again, pretty mundane, pretty lackluster, pretty humdrum, pretty almost pragmatic. They're not doing street preaching to people who believe in Zeus. They're starting in synagogues with Jews who already read their Old Testaments. And they do that through the length of the island, 
until they get to the other end, from the east end of the island to the west end, they get to Paphos, the administrative capital on the west end of the island. And only now, only now, does Luke feel like, now i got something to write about. Now we gotta, we got to preserve this one. This is amazing. And here is where missions interest the intelligent. The way they meet the Jewish false prophet is through the invitation of an intelligent proconsul named Sergius Paulus. Notice, he summoned them. Paul and Barnabas did not initiate with him. He reached out to them. Somehow, word had gotten back to Sergius Paulus of what Barnabas and Saul were teaching in Paphos and along the whole island. And he wanted them to come speak to him so he could hear about it. And Luke wants us to know that a cosmopolitan, intelligent Roman ruler like Sergius Paulus actually invited Barnabas and Saul to speak the gospel to him. He didn't call them because they were causing trouble or because he wanted to punish them. He called them because he was interested in what they had to say. He sought to hear the word of the Lord. And he's not an idiot. Christianity was not just for the poor and powerless. We can say the very first person who invites Paul and Barnabas to hear the gospel, to speak the gospel to them, is an intelligent ruler of a city, or maybe an island, a region. He's a proconsul. The gospel was for a Roman ruler, like Sergius Paulus. It wasn't just for uneducated, easily duped people. It wasn't just an opiate for the masses. You don't have to check your brain at the door to believe this gospel. Now, you may have to change your mind. You may have to submit your rationality to God's revelation. But you don't have to become stupid. You have to become humble. But that's a different thing. You don't have to quit using your mind. You just use it for a different purpose in a different way under a different authority. The gospel was for an intelligent man like Sergius Paulus, not just for countrified hicks with accents from backwaters like Nazareth or Cana. The gospel can get itself a hearing. It was for city people, even mayor, governor types like Sergius. Now, Sergius clearly had a pre-existing interest in spiritual truth and power. He's got a Jewish false prophet with him. Elemis functions for Sergius as something like a spiritual advisor mixed with a fortune teller to give Sergius a leg up on his political competition. Still, Sergius is a prominent man in a high position, and he seeks to hear the word of the Lord. And that sets up a power confrontation 
between the gospel and dark magic, between Saul and Elymas. And that brings us to our third fundamental of missions. Missions incurs opposition. Missions incurs opposition. You better believe it. Verse 8. And here we come to the real center of Luke's point in showing us this story. The encounter is invited by the proconsul, but the conflict is not with Sergius himself. It's with a Jewish false prophet and magician. Sergius is the territory that Saul and Elymas are fighting over. Saul and Barnabas were introduced as prophets and teachers, you'll remember, in verse 1. Now they are opposed by a false prophet here in verse 8. So what happens when a true prophet and a false prophet go head to head? They're teaching Sergius the way of the Lord, and as Sergius is seeking to hear God's word, Elymas is seeking just as hard to turn Sergius away from the faith. I don't know what it looked like for Elymas to try to turn Sergius away from the faith. Maybe he was interrupting the apostles at every turn. Maybe he was arguing with them. Maybe he was distracting Sergius. Maybe he was actually doing works of dark power to try to impress the proconsul, like the magicians in Egypt turning their staffs into snakes, just like Moses was able to do. Who knows what he was doing? Maybe he was trying to discredit the apostles themselves with smearing their character somehow. Whatever the case, Elymas was working against Saul, who now drops his Jewish name and goes by Paul to match his Roman context. He's no longer in Judea. Now he's going to be known by his Roman name, Paul. Of course, Elymas has had the proconsul's ear all to himself. Elymas likes having influence with Sergius. And Paul now comes along preaching the gospel, and Elymas sees himself losing his influence. He's not giving that up without a fight. Darkness hates the light, and darkness hates losing to the light. So darkness fights to retain its territory. In plain English, Christian, you should not be surprised when your evangelism meets with serious opposition, competition, and distraction from dark and powerful influences. And you shouldn't give up just because it does. Satan does not give up his territory in people without fighting for it. Think about what you're doing. You are trying to take a captive of the kingdom of darkness, and see if Christ might transfer him into the kingdom of light. That is unwelcome migration from the domain of the prince of darkness. He doesn't like losing citizens. So he's going to fight him. He's going to fight you. Even for godly men like Barnabas and Saul, their evangelism was regularly contested, con contradicted, even combated violently in some cases, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Now, we won't be able to do what Paul did here or what he's about to do, but we don't have to. We simply need to keep preaching the gospel despite all opposition from other people and powers. Just keep believing and proclaiming the gospel. Stick to your guns. The gospel is, in itself, the power 
of God to salvation for all who believe. So preach Christ crucified. Even though it's a stumbling block to Jews, even though it's foolishness to Greeks, even though Jews are looking for signs, Greeks are looking for wisdom, you preach Christ crucified. Don't get discouraged. Don't despair. Faithfulness is what God requires of us. The gospel can overcome any of its competitors. And that's what it does here. Missions overcomes opposition. Fourth fundamental of missions. Missions overcomes opposition. Verses 9 to 12. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's key. What that means is that the third person of the Trinity is pre- present in and with Paul for the accomplishment of specific gospel purposes in the moment. And because Paul is filled with the Spirit, both generally as a Christian and specifically as an apostle, and here in the moment for a specific act of ministry, he has power and authority to rebuke someone who is filled with something else, deceit and fraud. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, overcomes the spirit of the devil and all of his deceits. Now, I just want to clarify, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Paul's an apostle, you and I are not, so don't go away thinking you should call people sons of the devil and enemies of all righteousness and then try to strike them blind. We don't have a strike them blind adult education class in this church. I'm not going to teach you how to do that. We can't teach you how to do that. We can't do that. But this text is here for a purpose. And that purpose is to encourage us that when the gospel is preached, there is supernatural power present by God's Spirit to discern deceivers, to judge unbelief, and to induce faith. Missions overcomes opposition in some instances, by judging unbelief. The Word of God is living and active. It penetrates as deep as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's exactly what's happening here. And it's happening at an inward level with an outward sign in Acts 13. Paul, as a spirit-filled, Christ-appointed apostle, strikes Elemas blind as a sign of Elemas' blindness to the truth of the gospel. Hey, you're a false prophet. You don't see what you think you can see. You don't see like you think you can see. You're seeing something false. You're blind. You're a blind guide to the blind. And so I'm going to blind you for a time to show you you're walking in darkness and you're leading other people into that same darkness. And again, it's only for a time. But it's a discipline, it's a corrective, a judgment in that sense. Now, we never hear from Elymas again. We don't know if he repented or not, but he is blinded by the power and truth of the gospel. The gospel makes him come to grips with his own inability to see things rightly by blinding his physical eyes. And now the one who is seeking to lead Sergius away from the faith is groping around seeking someone else who will lead him by the hand. Reversal. He's seeking to lead someone else away from the gospel, and now he needs someone else to lead him anywhere he's going to go. 
And you wonder, too, if Paul does this because this is exactly what the risen Christ did to him, remember? This was Paul's Damascus Road experience. He himself had been blinded before he blinded Elymas. Paul himself had to be led by the hand, same verb. Verse 8, chapter 9. And you wonder if Paul did this to Elymas, hoping for the same outcome that he himself experienced when he was blinded, that Elymas might learn from his blindness to see the darkness of his own heart and to see Jesus as the light of the world. Meanwhile, the same gospel, the same spirit of the same God, the same instance of mission induces belief in an intelligent, open-minded man like Sergius Paulus. And when did the proconsul believe? When he saw what had occurred. When he saw. That verb is not a coincidence. The proconsul saw how Elymas was blinded by a superior spiritual power. Sergius Paulus is the one who now sees, while the false prophet, the one who said he could see more than the proconsul, is now blind. Same preacher, same gospel, same power, same situation, same instance, yet what a different result between Sergius and Elymas. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? The same preacher can preach the same gospel at the same time to people in the same situation. And it can have a judging effect on one and a saving effect on another. He believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Friends, this is here to encourage us. It's here to encourage you. The gospel overcomes. Missions overcomes. Will there be opposition, danger, frustration, competition, distraction, dark power at work, disagreements? Yes, all of that and more. Will we strike people blind? No. You will not strike anyone blind, but by God's grace, in answer to our prayers and using our perseverance, the gospel will overcome resistance and opposition to subdue souls for Christ's kingdom. That's going to happen. It will subdue some by proving the spiritual blindness of those who remain gospel enemies. It will subdue others by opening the eyes of their hearts to the truth and grace of the gospel of Jesus. Ultimately, what we're seeing here in Acts 13 is the truth of what Jesus said in John 9, 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see the proconsul. And those who see may become blind the false prophet. Fifth and finally, missions centers on teaching. Missions 
centers on teaching. Now look back over all the references to either teachers, teaching, or the gospel in verses 1 to 12. It all starts in verse 1 with teachers in Antioch. Incubation. Teaching. Then in verse 5, they... Barnabas and Saul proclaimed the word of God in Salamis. They proclaimed it. They taught it. Verse 7, the proconsul sought to hear the word of God. He wanted to be taught. Verse 8, Elymas seeks to turn the proconsul away from the faith, the content of what was taught. Verse 10, Paul tells Elymas he's making crooked the straight paths the straight teachings of the Lord. And here in verse 12, the whole theme culminates in how the proconsul is amazed, not simply at Saul and Barnabas themselves, personally, not at their charisma, not even at their power or their persuasiveness, not even simply at what happened to Elymas, but at the teaching of the Lord that produced that effect. He's impressed at the truth, not just at what functioned as the proof. He's impressed by the truth. This teaching, this Christ, Sergius concludes, he's the one who has real power, clean power, to overcome dark power. So missions, Christian missions, distinctively Christian mission, is not ultimately about digging wells to provide people clean water in remote areas, or building houses and hospitals, or teaching people English, or providing people with humanitarian aid. All those things are good things that Christians often do as a result of loving our global neighbor. Those are good things. But those things in themselves and by themselves are not missions. Missions involves proclaiming the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ verbally to people who don't yet know it or understand it. And this is our criteria for choosing which missionaries we are going to support, which organizations we're going to resource, which prospective pastors we want to take in and train, and which pastors we want to send out to pastor other churches. The mission of God is to make followers of Jesus through repentance from sin and faith in Him, to gather worshipers for Himself, to plant churches, to raise up pastors and elders for those churches. The ministries that are doing those things most faithfully according to the gospel, those are the ones we want to get behind. That's why we've been supporting Lazarus Piri in Andola, Zambia, training up pastors as at the Evangelical University, traveling the world to talk to churches and church leaders about biblical missions, a biblical understanding of the gospel and what that means to promote and proclaim that gospel all over the world. Lazarus is really good at that. He's really faithful in that. I would give him way more money 
than we have right now to do those things because he's a faithful man. He's doing that well with the gospel. That's why we support Reagan Martin in South Africa because he's training pastors of local churches there to preach the Bible expositionally. Pastors who are not able to go to seminary, so he brings the seminary to them and teaches them how to take the point of the passage of the Bible and make that the point of the sermon. Expositional, exposing the point of the passage. We support Marwan Abu Zelof in Lebanon and Prasun Goel in Delhi because they're both faithful pastors preaching the gospel and planting churches, new churches, in cities that desperately need them. We support Tim Beavis because he travels the world training church leaders to understand and teach the Bible to their congregations. And we've just joined the Association for Christian Mission and Evangelism because we are in lockstep with their understanding of the gospel, their philosophy of local church ministry, their understanding of missions as centered on gospel proclamation and local church planting. So when we elders think about the kinds of ministries that we want to bring forward to you for your financial support, we're thinking about ministries that proclaim and clarify the gospel, that focus on the truth of Christ crucified, that have as their aim not simply the conversion of atomistic Christians here and there, but church planting. And we'll see from the rest of the book of Acts. The gospel must be preached in all the world, and that means that we're looking, what we're looking for at a local level is men and women who understand the gospel deeply, obey it personally, and articulate it clearly. Those are the kinds of people we want to support as missionaries and disciple-makers. That's where missions begins. There can be no evangelism without a clear understanding and statement of what the evangel really is, what we want people to be impressed with from our missionaries and church planters is not, wow, Reagan's a great guy, or wow, Lazarus is a great guy. We want them to think they're great guys. What we want them to be amazed at is the teaching of the Word of God. And of course, the gospel has to begin with God. It's God who created us. He's the one who gave us the promises and warnings about obedience to His Word and ways in the first place. And of course, mankind sinned. We rebelled against God's law and love by reaching for the knowledge of good and evil out from under His good and right authority. That rebellion brought down God's righteous wrath on us as He warned us it would. It meant that we deserve eternal conscious torment in hell, and yet God sent His Son, Christ Jesus, to live the perfect human life that we should have lived, to die the human death we deserve to die in our place on the cross for our sins as our substitute. And He rose from the dead so that if we trust in Him and repent from our sins and from our self-righteousness and self-directedness, we can be united with Jesus in His resurrection and we can be saved from the power and penalty of our own sins. That is the message of missions. The mission of missions is to spread that message so that more people trust it and repent towards it, and in turn more churches would be planted and watered and grown up to testify together to the forgiving, uniting power of the gospel. Friends, I hope we've seen here that God is a God of mission. He incubates missions in the local church. He interests intelligent non-Christians in mission. 
And even when his mission encounters opposition, the God of missions overcomes that opposition. And God's mission is to save sinners from his own righteous wrath by teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified for the forgiveness of sins. This mission is our mission as a local church. This is what we're about. Other institutions, organizations, other people are on other missions. And maybe you yourself have been on a different mission, a mission for yourself up to this point in your life. But this mission, God's mission, Christ's mission, is the mission of the gospel. It's the mission of heaven itself. Are you on this mission with us? We hope you will join together with us on the greatest mission this world will ever know. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are excited about so many other potential missions, missions that are more focused on our own fulfillment or ambitions, our own loves, maybe even our own addictions. But you've shown us here that you are on a mission that transcends every other one. And so we pray, unite our hearts together in this local church around this greatest mission of all, the mission to save souls, the mission to spread your gospel far and wide, to be a church that incubates new pastors and missionaries, elders, church planters, evangelists, shares them, sends them out, that the gospel might overcome every enemy in opposition to it. And Lord, use us in this way, here and elsewhere, that your glory may cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. For Jesus' sake, amen.